So welcome, welcome everyone to our event today on can uncertainty derail the European recovery, economic recovery. My name is Joel Darvas, I'm a senior fellow at Bruegel and I'm very pleased to chair this event today. So the, the key issue is that economic growth in Europe has been in fact outperforming expectations. For example, last year growth was well over 2% per year, uh, while expectations were much below 2%. So they clearly a very nice growth momentum in Europe. But the question whether this growth momentum is sustainable, and also another question, what are the major uncertainties which could risk that uh, this nice growth performance continues in the coming years? And there are a number of issues that we can, we can mention, both internal, internal to the European Union and also external. Now, some internal issue uh, certainly includes, for example, the United Kingdom exit from the European Union. While we are always seeing up and downs in the negotiations, uh, at the moment we do not really see what will be the long-term relationship between the UK and the EU. There seems to be more of a consensus on the transition period after March next year, so exactly a year from now, yet we have not yet agreed even on the transition and also on the withdrawal uh, treaty, so that's certainly a part of uncertainty. Another one is related to political. Uh, I mean, our prominent speaker, Franco Buni, is from Italy, and certainly, as you know, Italy just had elections, uh, and at the moment, <coughs> there is no government on site. We do not know what will happen there, what government will be formed, what will be the policies of the new government, but that could also bring some uncertainties into Europe. And also within the Eurozone, there are also a number of other more economic issues, like, for example, large unemployment uh, in some parts of, of, of Eurozone, which is gradually improving, but only gradually, and it's still a major problem. There's a major problem between trust between, between different members of the uh, Eurozone and the European Union in general. We see a divide between both the north and south, and also the west and east of the, of the EU. So I think there are really a couple of issues uh, which might pose uncertainties. And also outside Europe, certainly the, 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 the most important issue is certainly the United States trade policy, which we'll also discuss today. So I'm, I'm very pleased to chair this panel, which will have three really prominent speakers. Uh, <coughs> let me start with, with, the, with the lead speaker today, uh, Franco Buni, who is the vice president of, of ISPI uh, and also a professor of economics uh, at uh, the University of, of Bocconi. And ISPI has written three reports, one on, 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 on Italy, one on Europe, and one more on global. And uh, Franco will, I think, give a mixture of, of messages uh, of these, but focusing on, on Europe. <laughs> then. Um, uh, second in alphabetic order, we will have Maria de Mertis, who is the deputy director at Bruegel. Um, and thirdly, in the alphabetic order, we will have Martia Schake, member of the European Parliament. She already informed us a few days ago that due to other commitments, she will be a little bit delayed, so she might arrive, I don't know, in, in, in 15 minutes. Um, but we very much welcome to, to see her. So first we ask, ask Franco to offer, offer an initial presentation of, of about 20 minutes. Thank you. And then we will have a discussion with, with, the, with the two panelists and then I will open the floor for all oh, no. for you for questions and comments. Can we go back? <coughs> yeah. 
Thank you very much for having me here. Uh, this is really the most prestigious think tank in, in Europe, and uh, uh, the relationship with ISPI is, uh, is very good. Um, the title of today's uh, conversation and debate uh, has some relationship to the title of the uh, last uh, ISPI report on that we, uh, our annual report on the, on the year before, uh, which is called uh, Big Powers Are Back, What About Europe? And clearly these big powers are the element of uncertainty in a way because they, they, they don't agree with each other. They, they, this is a moment of divided words. So this is the source of uncertainty. And the point is, what is Europe going to do in such a situation? Are, are we going to get more united or, or, or more effective or, or less effective, etc.? Uh, you can download this free, uh, free from from the from the website of ESPI if you if you want. Um, now, what are the sources of uncertainty? Uh, starting from the specific European issues, let me just uh, uh, start from probably the, the less important, but it's. Uh, still uh, it cannot be left out. Uh, Germany has come very late to uh, provide a, a government and a plan. The government is, has a small majority, and we know that both parties are uh, very much pro-Europe, and they have a common vision also of, of, of global affairs. But still, uh, we had much less help from Germany in the recent uh, months than we could have hoped uh, before. Um, <clears throat> I would also mention the fact that uh, we keep having uh, events, uh, geopolitical tensions that pop up from one moment to the other and attract attention and political concentrations that are not devoted to uh, confront the, 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 the big problems of deepening Europe, etc. Take the, the spy affair of Russia that probably will absorb an enormous amount of time in the, in the meeting of these days while we, sh we should take care of different things. Uh, um, <clears throat> there are, uh, uh, are problems in the Franco-German leadership of, of Europe, uh, uh, both because the two positions are I think a bit different. The French position is more ambitious but more vague, uh, and the German position is much more pragmatic and precise but much less ambitious. So we're going to see what uh, what's going to happen, uh, and we also sometimes uh, ask the question: How much is this uh, leadership uh, uh, accepted, and uh, how much is, is is well accepted? I think it's it's more accepted than it used to be. Uh, say. Uh, one year or, or some, something more time ago, because pragmatically we have all accepted that, that, that somebody has to lead this, uh, this complex thing that we have in Europe. But, but still there are, uh, there are enemies. Uh, political, political, economic, and economic. Hi, I'm Hi. sorry. Hi. Political and economic problems coming from Italy are certainly uh, last in this, uh, uh, in this uh, 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 but, but, but they are not least. Huh? Uh, if we have time, we can discuss a little bit uh, about that later. Um, 
my, my idea is that most, most of our problems are really de facto European problems, uh, both because they in part come from uh, defects of the European integration and, and, a, and a wrong relationship between national countries and, and, the, and, and because uh, Euro Italy is a bomb for Europe. So if we don't solve our problems, uh, I think uh, that uh, many more than Italians will be hurt. Uh, if we go to global issues, uh, uh, we could uh, have an enormous list, obviously, and take uh, the whole uh, afternoon to discuss it. I, I just pick two very specific aspects. Um, one is a point which I discuss a little bit in one of the chapters of this report, uh, which is what happens when you have uh, a situation like today where the economics is fine uh, because basically the global economy is getting into a positive uh, cycle, but the the political situation is is uh, is very bad, and there are a lot of divisions and conflicts and geopolitical tensions. I mean, this contrast is 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 a source of uncertainty, a very big source of uncertainty. I think it can be solved in different ways, and uh, we don't know how. Uh, it's a stimulus in a way to 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 to, to solve things, but it's a, it gives a window, windows of opportunity because the economic situation is 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 positive, and it, it's a window of opportunity to to really take care of the of the institutional and political things, but um, but also negative loops can develop between these two. Uh, and then we have the the most uh, relevant topic of today, which is Trump tariffs and protectionism, and the, uh, the danger that that growth can 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 suffer from this. Uh, even yesterday, the decision from the Fed was uh, in part uh, <clears throat> commented by saying that well. Uh, uh, things are going fine in terms of GDP, but um, uh, the consequences of the of a, of a trade war could be could be very severe. So this creates also uncertainty. It could create uncertainty also on, on monetary policy in America and not only in America. Um, as I said, I, I, I've written a few pages here on on this contrast between. Uh, uh, the, the, the good economy and the, and the bad politics uh, and how this can create uncertainty. Uh, well, clearly there is a suspect of a cyclical illusion when this happens because you, you, you are really concentrating on, on short-term news that are good, even on economics. You, are, you don't tend to look uh, uh, in, in the far future where there are weaknesses that in a way are consistent with the inappropriate political behavior. So. This is a source of, uh, of uncertainty. And if you look at the uh, official forecasts, uh, economic forecasts for the coming years, they are a bit, uh, a bit lower than the, than the ones of last year and, uh, and the current one. Uh, moreover, there is a, a tendency to, to not to use the good economic cycle as a window of opportunity to correct the policies, but quite the opposite to go for a, a economic complacency that distracts from the efforts to correct the wrong policies and improve institutions. Um, <clears throat> and so the, sometimes the question comes, uh, is, is Europe, uh, which is divided, and, and, uh, and, uh, and global cooperation, which is, which is uh, lacking, uh, 
Uh, are they waiting for the next great economic crisis? This is clearly a very popular question today, which is the, the major source, I think, of, of uncertainty, because this is really going back to 2009. Uh, and then I, uh, I just recall the famous uh, fold lines uh, of Raghuram Rajan uh, that, that, that in part uh, explained the, the, the big crisis uh, uh, that we have now left, uh, <clears throat> uh, and we have now. <clears throat> uh, are these fault lines have have, have these fault lines been uh, solved, uh, bridged, uh, or, or or they are still there, and in a way they can cause uh, the next recession. And here I list. Uh, the, 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 the obvious, this is the obvious list of all lines that we all know, income and wealth distributions, the famous losers from globalization, which is a much more subtle concept than the one purely economic that we have in mind. Losers mean, uh, I mean, we could talk a lot about that. Uh, losers in, in part mean that people that have lost faith and they've lost trust in the leaders. <clears throat> they don't want to delegate power. <clears throat> and therefore, <clears throat> big decisions that are far from them cannot be taken effectively because they don't want, they don't want to, delegate, to, to delegate power. And this creates localism. And uh, even among people that are not really victims of globalizations because they <coughs> survive very well. And then you have the productivity paradoxes, the secular stagnation. <coughs> Uh, there's an enormous literature there, obviously, uh, and I don't think that even academic uh, research has reached any robust result. So this is a big source of uncertainty for the for the long term. Um, there's there's an excessive uh, degree of indebtedness of the word, uh, uh, much different from the one that preceded the, the big crisis of the 2007 2009. Uh, because it's distributed in a different way, it's concentrated in certain countries, and, in a, and it's shaped in a different way. But still, the numbers are impressive. I mean, the, the, the ratio between total debt and GDP keeps increasing, and it's a disaster. I mean, it's a bomb. Sooner or later, we have to do with it, uh, something with it. Um, and the big doubt, according to me, is uh, also why is this debt keeping increasing? What is the most general explanation for that? Well, according to me, quite apart from the fact that it's nourished by extremely expansionary monetary policies that are doing, I think, damages now, right? so they, we have to, to be quick in, in, in shrinking the, 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 the excessive liquidity which is around. But this is just a mechanical cause. What is the political cause for this uh, global leverage? Well, this may be, and this is a big source of uncertainty and problems, maybe that this credit, uh, this, this credit is produced to keep the losers alive, to help uh, the, the people that are shocked from, from changes in technology, globalization, uh, culture, etc., to, to stay alive and not change. So it's a way to cushion changes instead of producing changes. You put credit, you keep the people, organizations, firms, governments, everybody keeps going instead of changing because it's, it's provided with, uh, 
with, with, with credit. And, this, and this, if, this is, if this is true, then, uh, then we, are, we are really approaching uh, progressively the point of crisis because you cannot uh, keep, uh, which, which was exactly what happened in 2007. Uh, after more than a decade that uh, loans were, had been provided to solve all sorts of problems from the bad public administration in Italy to the populistic uh, banking policy in, in, in North America. Uh, so uh, <clears throat> uh, then we have the usual topic of financial innovation uh, from cryptocurrencies to uh, simply uh, fintech or, or the crisis of the traditional uh, business model of, of commercial banks uh, uh, and banks in general, um, uh, the new complexities of risk taking, this, uh, okay, we know about black swans and, and rare events, but uh, uh, it's, also, it's also impressive how risk, risk takers, that is market makers, are are showing a behavior which is increasingly um, uh, discontinuous. That is, they, they, they keep changing their mind from a risk-off uh, to a risk-on attitude in a very, in a very uh, uh, discontinuous way, changing completely their mindset from when they are hit by certain information that they interpret in, this, in, in such a way. And it's very difficult to deal with markets, uh, financial markets that are uh, behaving in this, in, in this way. Then we have monetary policies that are, according to me, uh, in a crisis period, also theoretically. I mean, uh, the relationship between money and prices is, is less and less evident. Uh, and the fact that each country should conduct its own monetary policy looking at its, nation, at, at its national uh, situation with flexible exchange rate taking care of the differences is a model very traditional, very orthodox even today. Uh, uh, repeated continuously by central bankers, finance ministers, etc. But I think it's failing uh, because the globalization of finance requires much more coordination between monetary policies uh, in order them, for them to, to have any hope to be effective. And probably also some more care about the un uncertainty that comes from exchange rates, potential changes in exchange rates in particular. Um, and then we have also sort of an ideological shock. I feel it a lot coming from Italy, but I think that this is also the case for in other countries. Uh, sort of an ideo ideological struggle between economists, politicians, and commentators, uh, public opinion that concentrate on short-term stabilization and a lot. Of, they, they want a lot from monetary and fiscal policy. And the others that insist on structural reforms, long-term reallocation of resources. Uh, clearly, we need both, but but the equilibrium between the two is very difficult, and in a way, it's it's a source of unbalance, also politically, that creates uh, uh, uncertainty. Uh, a final uh, slide on 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 what is probably the. Uh, <clears throat> the most shocking event of the last uh, week or so, uh, the Trump tariffs, uh, uh, the, the threatened uh, retaliation by, by Europe, uh, uh, Trump that uh, threats to, to put tariffs on, on cars, and China's uh, reactions, uh, 
So are we going to have a trade war and what is going to happen to this economic cycle and growth in general if this happens? Um, well, I, I, obviously I don't have any, any answer and any reasonable forecast. Uh, let me just, uh, moreover, I think that somebody else will, will later talk about this with much more competence. Um, let me just note uh, a few things. First of all, okay, tariffs are impressive, and some of us that are not involved with, uh, with international trade uh, practically or uh, don't even sometimes think to the existence of tariffs here and there, uh, but, um, but non-tariff obstacles have been there for a lot of time and have been increasing in the recent, uh, in the recent years. Uh, and I think that there's, there's a possibility that the current tariff uh, explosion is a consequence of the fact that for too much time we have neglected to take care of non-tariff obstacles. Uh, there were, I mean, colleagues of mine around the world published, uh, uh, producing graphs and numbers measuring the degree of non-tariff protection, and this, this was growing, growing, but nobody would listen to them because uh, because that was a subtle calculation made uh, by putting numbers attached to regulations, uh, legal subsidies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but this this is what really counts a lot. And in a way, uh, and obviously the WTO is is, an, is totally inadequate to confront uh, to uh, a situation which has these, these characteristics. Uh, it's uh, not has practically no powers uh, really. Uh, only the of certain rules, it's totally top, uh, bottom up, uh, and, and so um, uh, the, now uh, how to cope with uh, with such a thing? What I have in mind personally, but I think it's it's shared by by many people, is that we we have to exclude an ideological contrast between free trade in intending by free trade total liberalization and you know uh, and and protectionism i mean clearly there is a way to to uh, to deal with with uh, disequilibria with differences in co more or less temporary differences in, in cost of producing things and today also in cost of adjusting to to, to the new to, to the new comparative advantages that come from globalization and technology. Uh, so uh, there, there are ways to, to interfere uh, with, uh, with, uh, yeah, with uh, <clears throat> to interfere with, with free trade in, in the right ways, uh, but this has, been, has to be done together, so with cooperation. So this, this is the crucial point. Uh, so we should sort of exclude the fact of going to uh, you know, f full cooperation doesn't mean being sorry, working for cooperation and insisting on cooperation doesn't mean to insist on full liberalization. This is a, a, an association that also in, in the communication with the public opinion has to be specified because, the, for instance, in my country, the idea of of, uh, of having international trade. Uh, uh, common discourse is means to go for total free trade, no, no, no care about, about difference. And this is very, very wrong, and people should understand that uh, uh, quite the opposite. 
Then there is the role of the G20, which is sort of, I have the communique here of the G20 of the other day in Argentina, and it's, it's, it's really a, 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 a total hypocrisy. I mean, uh, there are two lines on, on trade, and it says, uh, we reaffirm the conclusions of our leaders on trade at the Hamburg summit. Things have been changing from the Hamburg summit, obviously and recognize the need for further dialogue and actions. We are working to strengthen the contribution of trade to our economies. I mean, if G20 will go for a hiding uh, operation of these issues, uh, the contribution will be negative. Let's remember that in 2009, the G20 was extremely effective in giving also announcements, very politically very effective, that there was a, a, a general desire not to react to the crisis with protectionism. Today, things are a bit different. Uh, and then, finally, the issue of uh, what is going Europe to do. Are we going, we, we have this uh, uh, delegation of power to the Commission, which makes Europe uh, theoretically much more powerful and effective. It, and this can be beneficial for Europe, but also for the rest of the world, because the, you have an actor which has uh, uh, certain values that are well known and can 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 work to, to, to get real solutions to the to the problem. Can also act as a bridge between different. But the problem is, will our delegation resist, uh, or is it in danger? Will will trade centralization be in a way weakened? For instance, we, we are hearing about Germany having a lot of uh, diplomacy now with China, etc. It's fine, I mean, but it's fine, very fine. Uh, let's uh, wish all the success to this diplomacy, but it should not, uh, should not uh, uh, decrease the effectiveness of uh, common uh, European trade policy. Also, because uh, Germany is a is highly concentrated in certain sectors, has a very spe very special interest in international trade, has an enormous surplus. And if you put together Germany and China with the big surpluses, I mean, as advocates of free trade, they, they are sort of suspect of, of, of self-interest, obviously. So, uh, we, 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 so it is important that Europe uh, also from a, a for a, from the point of view of appearances, I mean, in, in terms of, of how it shows up, uh, it really acts as a common, uh, as a common. And I repeat, this is for the benefit of Europe, but also uh, of the rest of the world. I, I think I will stop here because I've exhausted my time. Uh, if, if you want, uh, maybe later on the question and answers, I don't know if, uh, uh, well, I, I have some other slides that, that look at the dossier that are opened to uh, confront these uncertainties. So what is Europe doing uh, on the various fronts and a few observations on specific issues and maybe also something on Italy if you are um, interested. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Franco, for this, for this very thoughtful uh, introduction to, to these really important global issues. Uh, and I think it's indeed, <coughs> you stopped just the right time uh, for, for, for a distinguished uh, member of the European Parliament, uh, Marte Schake, if I pronounce your name correctly. Uh, we are very pleased to, to have you here. Uh, you have been a member of the Parliament since 2009 in the, in the Aldi group, and you serve in the International Trade Committee, and also are the Aldi spokesman, spokesperson on, 
on transatlantic trade and, and digital trade. So we're really interested to hear your views on, on what's, what, you, what you're thinking about the potential for, for the US-Europe or even a global US-China trade war. Uh, how do you see the negotiations which are certainly going behind the scenes? Um, what impact that might have? What should, what should be Europe's response? Mm -hmm. So if you could share your thoughts with us, we would be very, very grateful for that. Thank you very I don't know if this is on. Is it on? Yeah? Oh, it's a nice mic. Um, thank you for having me. And uh, I apologize for coming in a bit late and for having to leave a little bit early. It's a slightly chaotic days. We just had local elections yesterday, so I have to go back and forth uh, to the Netherlands. Uh, and uh, we have found the country even more fragmented on the local level than we, uh, we already saw it uh, in the national negotiations for a four-party coalition. So. Maybe that's a perspective to keep as well, all these local uh, national developments of a political landscape that's fragmenting while big decisions have to be made that, in my opinion, require a strong core of uh, uh, centrist parties, ideally, that can work together, that are willing to work together, and that can uh, convince the people they represent that big steps are necessary. Because um, I think that that's the context in which we should see the challenges that uh, that Europe or the EU or both are facing, uh, and I'll zoom in on trade uh, happily. Is, okay. Um, this morning we had an exchange of views with Commissioner Malmstrom, who had literally just landed from Washington, and uh, I'm myself very careful to. Yeah, right. There is a zoom. Yeah. Um, is this better? Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> okay. Anyway, um, so she had just returned from Washington and could give us uh, her, her experiences there in, frankly, an unprecedented breakdown of trust between allies. I think, and I, I've spent time studying in the US, uh, I'm vice president of the US delegation of the parliament, uh, I've been committed to seeking a solid outcome of the TTIP negotiations when they were still ongoing, but it's safe to say that my transatlantic heart is bleeding. Uh, you know, what is going on in Washington and how hard it is to read what the thinking of this administration is, is really actually quite damaging to uh, uh, liberal democracies and our credibility and our ability to stand up to some of these big challenges. And I think it is painful and at the wrong time. So it is very important that we respond wisely. And of course, with, you know, tweets at early hours, uh, hints that you know trade wars are easy and even more easy to win um, with something sensational coming out of Washington almost every day it is easy to get carried away and I understand I mean every evening news I'm sure in the member states that you know best uh, newspapers social media there is constantly some incident that is distracting us but what I think we should be doing in Europe and I think we are broadly doing, thankfully, is to actually really take things calmly, rationally, and step by step. So that means, one, trying to convince the Americans that this is a lose-lose path. Trade wars are nothing to glorify. They don't have any winners. And it will probably come back as a boomerang to the United States, which is, as we are in Europe, very dependent on global supply chains, we are not living in a zero-sum world. Instead, we're living in a hyper-connected world. And in fact, 
we've benefited quite a bit from that openness and connectivity historically. We've also benefited from building a rules-based system together through the WTO uh, and through other multilateral fora. And I think it's important to remind the US that that has you know, helped them and us to shape certain uh, rules in our mirror image uh, to our benefit. And I hope we can continue to build this together instead of seeing it eroded or broken down uh, deliberately. So um, this sort of rational approach in diplomatic engagement, I believe, is, is the step that we should give all our attention. And let's see what happens today. Uh, we may hear an announcement that the EU could be exempt from the tariff and aluminum uh, tariffs on steel and aluminum. But that doesn't mean that the whole story is, is over. Uh, we, we have still then to answer the question whether we want to challenge the notification of national security on imposing tariffs at all in this context uh, and whether we should go to the WTO. Now, should this all fail, and again, it's hard to read Washington these days, it's hard to read the USTR, uh, the, the Secretary of Commerce, the White House itself, so I think we really have to wait for the official announcement. But if the EU does not uh, get exempt from the proposed tariffs, then of course we have to be ready to act uh, to balance out the negative impact, not to strike back, not to escalate, not to do a, um, you know, an eye for an eye kind of uh, a dynamic, but really to balance it out while we still continue to pursue uh, avenues to the WTO and diplomatic avenues. I think this sort of step-by-step, -step, carefully explained uh, and, and uh, diplomatically argued path is, is the one thing we can do right now. Now, of course, I've tried to explain what I think for a couple of minutes now without even mentioning China. And this is the unintended consequence of all of this um, uh, unintended uh, or unwise un, um, um, behavior from, from the Trump administration. Because frankly, if the goal was to address overcapacity, subsidy, dumping from China, and I really think it should be our goal, then clearly that's not what we're doing. And it looks like China and other countries that have an opposing worldview to ours in many ways are benefiting from this chaos in the transatlantic relation. And again, that's why I started by saying that this sort of um, <coughs> challenge or ripple in, in the Atlantic is, uh, is coming at the wrong moment. And um, uh, we, sh we should be very careful. So maybe I'll end there and let's make it interactive uh, so that we can uh, do a bit more of a Q&A instead of me talking for a long time. Thank you very, very much for, for your insights. And let me turn to Maria who will focus on, on Europe. I mean, you mentioned the breakdown of trust between major transatlantic partners. Uh, and I think Maria would mention the breakdown of trust or the limited trust between EU countries. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> thank you very much, Jolt and uh, Franco. Thank you very much for a very interesting uh, overview, very comprehensive overview. And, and Mark here also for very specific comments on trade, which are, of course, uh, the order of the day. Uh, yeah, I wanted to go back a little bit and, and talk uh, about the sources of uncertainty, since this is really the... Uh, the, the, the topic in, in the context of Europe, and some of it is inevitably uh, internal sources, and some of them are external in the way that Marty actually just described, and you did as well in your presentation. Um, so I would like to ask the question, where does this uncertainty come from, uh, and what we can do about it? And, and really the first one is very much this issue of trust. Uh, there isn't an event that we go to in Brussels uh, these days where we discuss various proposals of how to do things, how to move forward, uh, or 
how to move uh, in any case when at least one or two people would would raise their hands and, and, and uh, contest the idea of how are you going to do whatever it is you're suggesting to do uh, when there is so little trust. And when you go and ask the question, what do you mean by that, then there the, are actually important fault lines um, that I have, in my view, developed, and they are about uh, trust between countries. In, in their belief on what the European integration is about. Uh, and, and a joint uh, uh, effort of distrust against the European institutions, that the European institutions are really there to, uh, that it's really being contested, that the European institutions are there really to promote the welfare of European citizens. And that is actually very worrying, because any idea that you want to put forward in terms of increasing the resilience of the system uh, rests on a, a very strong assumption that there is trust in all these dimensions uh, and beyond the go externally. And if that is challenged, uh, then, uh, then there is very, in my view, there is very little we can do to make progress. So that the question is, why is there such a lack of trust uh, or is an erosion of trust, if you like? And, and, and what can we do to, to get it back? Uh, and I think that there are crucial questions and we need to have some very difficult conversations um, uh, in order to be able to move forward. And, and you know, I think the at the bottom line, if I was to take a guess as to why there is such trust, is because there there is actually very different levels of governance across the EU member states. And by governance, I really mean the way that we actually do business, the way that we run our countries, the level of corruption, the efficiency of the state, um, all these things that constitute good governance, they're very varied across countries. And not only are they varied, but you can actually see that through the crisis, um, some of the countries actually have seen a deterioration of that by, by therefore increasing the heterogeneity of countries. And in my view, it is going to be very difficult to make any progress so long as this, this divergence of, uh, of the rule of law primarily uh, uh, continues. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, if you wanted to then attempt to regain this trust, I think this is where we need to make progress in. And, you know, we have processes in Europe whereby we monitor the economic convergence of countries, and I think that's important because about the welfare. But I believe that economic convergence is ephemeral uh, and therefore not sustainable if at the same time we don't make progress on, on exactly this, the issue of governance, the quality of governance, and the way that we actually uh, go about uh, managing our, our states and, and, and dealing with citizens. I think there, there is where we need to make uh, progress in, and there is where I would like the EU uh, to, to play more role and external pressure coming from the EU Primarily because the promise was there when countries joined throughout the last 50 years, uh, the discussion uh, uh, was very much about join, and if you join, then the process of convergence of institutions was going to be easier, more effective. Well, that promise, I'm afraid, the EU has not delivered. Uh, and, of course, countries are responsible for this, but the EU as an institution hasn't, in my view, made enough of an effort to push in the direction, even though we have pushed very much in the direction of economic convergence, we now see uh, that unless we make progress also on the government side, uh, this is not sustainable. Um, so, um, now, while we're you know, thinking about that, uh, the challenges that the Europe faces are coming to us, and so what do we do in the meantime? How do we react in, 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 uh, in the challenges that are faces? And the way that I approach this question is by sort of thinking about the minimum things that we can do uh, to increase the resilience of the system, the system being the EU. Um, and there, there I, I do think that there are things we can do. Um, the first one is uh, Brexit. I think we need to ensure as an EU that we have a good Brexit outcome. Uh, first of all, because it makes good sense for everybody, for the UK, but also for the EU. And secondly, because the relationship with the UK is not just an, a trade relationship, it's a stronger alliance. 
If we don't get that right, it means that we don't value our alliance. Uh, and therefore, I think that would be extremely counterproductive in our ability to, uh, to live peacefully in, in the future. So nurturing the alliance is the primary reason why I think we need to have um, a good Brexit outcome, uh, let alone the economics behind it. The second one is Trump, of course, and you know, here I'm very much with, with what Mark has actually said. Uh, I mean, I, uh, I think the EU, the one role that the EU can play is a, sort of a defender of multilateralism uh, more than anything else. And uh, you know, whether you, know, you have good threats to uh, antagonize um, a partner that is extremely unreliable, you know, that we can talk about. But at the end of the day, um, uh, you know, the multilateral system and the role of the EU in protecting that is what I think uh, we ought to be, uh, we ought to be uh, uh, concentrating in. And then the last thing that I would like in terms of the architecture of EU, because there's you know, a lot of discussions uh, both here and in capitals about how to move the EU architecture forward. Again, with very little trust on what countries are able to do and commit into the European integration, as well as distrust on the European institutions, uh, there isn't much we can achieve. But the one thing I would like us to think about is how can we provide insurance for the system? Um, and you know, insurance is only makes sense if it's collective. If it's not collective, it doesn't make sense. I mean, you know, you have the moral hazard problem, so you need to charge the appropriate rates for those who are risky. But at the same time, you need to force everybody to participate in an insurance system. Otherwise, the system is not sustainable. So you know, it's not just the unhealthy that get health insurance. Also, the health, healthy are forced to participate. Uh, also, because they will be, they might become uh, so future customers of the of insurance. But also because then you you really uh, solve the problem of adverse selection. This is, in my view, the way we should approach European architecture. How do we collect? How do we create collective insurance systems for shocks that may hit us, economic but otherwise as well? Uh, and, and, and ensure that every country does its bit for it. Um, you know, this feeds into the discussion between risk sharing and risk reduction. I don't think you can have one or the other, you need both. So the, the sick need to, do, need to adapt better lifestyles in order to reduce the risks of, of, of sicknesses, uh, but the healthy need to contribute to the insurance of the system, other the system is not sustainable. Um, so, you know, on the moral hazard, you charge appropriate risks, and risk premium, so you ask the structural reforms. The structural reforms are good for countries and we all need to engage in that. That will increase the health of the system, uh, but the insurance mechanism is there to protect in the process of, of, uh, of uh, restructuring. So I, I would like to um, suggest that we take small steps, um, stay the course, ensure that the EU continues to exist in ways that are unites us rather than divides us, uh, but ensure that everybody understands that we need to do both our part as members of the system, but also of the system itself. We need to see the EU as a, as a system that cannot survive unless we approach it as more than just the sum of its parts. I'll stop here and, and welcome the discussion. Can I, can I ask a question? <laughs> yes, please. Yes. Um, I, I, I'm trying to, to answer, I'm trying to think about this risk sharing issue. Are we really using the right words and is this insurance, etc.? Now, suppose we have 10 houses and each house is very far apart from the others, okay? They have risk of going into fire, okay? Now, insurance is made in order to diversify risk among independent uh, sources of risk, okay? Now, is this really the 
for instance, the problem of uh, risk sharing in, in European finance? I don't think so. I mean, the, 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 why would, should Germany share the risks of Italian finance? Obviously, coupled with sufficient control on what Italy does, uh, as insurance companies do. Well, because if Italy goes into fire, there is contagion. I mean, this is, this is and, and, and the contagion is very, very deep. So uh, we should, uh, on many fronts, I mean, the financial front first and then the rest. So um, I think we have to, because risk sharing, it seems to be, uh, let's participate to a risk sharing adventure. Now, the point is that you share the risks anywhere. Any, in any way, you, you, you have to organize well the, the way you are sharing these risks, because the risks are shared any, in, in, in any case, even if you don't uh, go for risk sharing. So this is my opinion. I don't know if it's right or wrong, but I think we, are, we must be careful to, to insist too much on these concepts, because insurance is a different thing. <laughs> This is, in a way, my question. I think you've answered it, actually. Yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah. Well, it's in your metaphor, effectively, you're saying the houses are not so far apart. Yeah. They're actually very close exactly, together. Exactly. And, and therefore, that, and that's why you need the insurance. You need the collective insurance. You might have a house on here that might so live a very risky life and, and, and yeah. run the risk of actually getting into fire. But if the houses are very close, and in fact, the EU, not only are the houses too close, but we're aiming for the houses to be too close. That's what we mean for financial integration. We want the financial integration, we want the trade, we want the currency. So, you know, the houses are effectively very correctly. And as you say, uh, um, that, that, you know, we eventually will share the risk of fire. That doesn't preclude the fact that the house on the left that is very risky should do something about its fire behavior. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's very important. This is why the risk reduction versus risk sharing is a false height dichotomy. False. It's not that you can have one without having exactly. the other. You need both. And, and everybody needs to do their bit to it. And, and, and it's different depending on how haphazard you are in terms of fire riskiness. Well, and I think the question is, at what pace and through which structure can you build trust? Because I think there's a perception of asymmetry in the burden of the risk falling on one side or the other, right? Yeah. So I agree there is risk to the system. Uh, but the question is really how can you systematically sort of build that trust back up instead of going in this downward spiral. And my frustration, I guess, is that we spend so much time looking at whether the neighbor has, has you know, invested in, in the foundation enough uh, that we don't see the sort of global yeah. challenges to, to all of us as well. So I agree that because we live in the same village, uh, we're exposed to the same challenges, but we should also look at the sort of broader perspective, um, metaphorically, the country, for example, and see whether the sea is rising. Uh, so, To use better Dutch. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it works well for us. We, we've oh, yeah. uh, managed, managed to fight that challenge, but it's, it's a very serious thing. I think there's rising tides of global dynamics that we have to um, take into consideration. Sure. And, and I think politically, this perspective switch could actually be helpful, but it's not really invited by member state governments because they are still bogged down to a large extent by questions of who's a bigger net payer and um, uh, is it fair compared to my neighbor instead of does it actually uh, justify what we're investing in together. You know, hardly anyone is defending why it's worth uh, being part of the, the, of the village uh, these days. Yeah. Uh, let me have a, a follow-up question to you, uh, M.A.P. Schakel, on, on this trust issue. Um, Maria mentioned in, in, in one of her initial thoughts that 
that there, has, there was an erosion of trust, both between member states, but also toward European institutions. Yeah. And first, my first question is, how do you see uh, this erosion of trust? I mean, has there been a recovery at least? And my second question uh, is, is what to do with that? How to improve trust? I mean, particularly in European institutions where you also work, but also among the many different member states that the European Union includes. Um. I mean, this is it's not a small question, and I, if I had all the answers, I probably wouldn't be sitting here. But um, I don't think it's over at all, and I don't think we should be complacent. I think there are some <laughs> movements in the right direction uh, in terms of leaders who are willing to speak out for longer-term perspectives and European cooperation being able to gain support, for example. Uh, that it's not an inevitable trend towards nationalism and protectionism, which we feared uh, at one moment in time. But at the same time, these are still uh, political forces that are, that are adding into the equation of what we can do together uh, on the European level. You know, even if there are minorities in most countries, they're still determining the terms of the debate, the flexibility and the room for maneuver of governments, the tone, uh, versus other countries or immigrants, because uh, these are usually exchanged um, in, in an instrumental way. So uh, I think we still have major challenges to, to deal with. Now, how can it be overcome? I believe we need to be rigorously focused on a set of priorities. Uh, and we need to also, um, so a set of priorities, and I think they're not that difficult to sketch. I think there are a couple of issues from migration and asylum to uh, climate change to economic growth to defense um, that are necessary to tackle, and, and you will find a lot of people agreeing with that. But then also, I, I'm um, convinced that if we do not, if, if member states and political groups are not willing to hold each other to account for principles that they have themselves signed up to, we're going to see uh, sliding down. So, you know, questions of how to deal with Hungary when you're the Christian Democratic group, the fact that there have been absolutely no consequences or no serious um, or visible political uh, challenges to Viktor Orban's behavior while at the same time uh, when it comes to Poland, there's a whole different approach. People are not crazy. You know, people are not crazy. It is not credible to operate that way. And the same goes between member states. It's really, really hard to ask for solidarity when it comes to cohesion funds, when you're not giving an inch of solidarity when it comes to immigration that you have yourself signed up to the rules. So I'm in favor of a, a sort of a rules-based approach, not only on trade, but also on European cooperation. It's the only way to regain trust. If you agree to something, I mean, it's a very Dutch thing perhaps as well, but I think in every business, in every um, relationship, you know, when, when you look each other in the eye, when you shake each other's hands and you say, we agree, this is how we're going to proceed, and the other person or the other side breaks that trust, it hurts and it should have consequences. And otherwise, we will not be able to, to break this negative spiral, I think. So I would say focus on key priorities, deliver on them, and be rigorous on the rule of law. And the rule of law is there. I mean, member states are member states for a reason. So it must have a meaning. Otherwise, if we're not serious about our own principles, how can we expect others to be? Thanks. Indeed, it's a very, very difficult, difficult question. Um, but I very, very much agree with you. One final point that you said we should be very rigorous on, on rule of law. 
Um, there has been one idea floated that, for example, the next multi-year financial framework could be linked to a measure of, of respecting rule of law and EU core values. And I think this is one of the ideas that, that some members of the European Parliament also proposed. Let me just have the question that how practical such a system could be. For example, would it be possible to design a system which could be, first of all, based on, 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 on sound principles, could be implemented relatively fast, you know, not after five or four years of struggle when, when actually the MFF has already passed? Uh, maybe I'm not 100% sure what sort of mechanisms you're alluding to, but if you're talking about um, so conditioning on yeah. EU payments on respecting the rule of law and European values. Yeah, I think I think it's uh, it's not the not the step we should take lightly, but it's one that should be on the table. Um, otherwise, it's again unsustainable. Uh, we also have to you know explain why paying into the pot. Uh, is done for the greater good, and it means that paying into the greater good should also be a uh, contribution that can be asked So from all. So yes, I think it should be on the table. But we should think hard about how to make it a mechanism that can be fairly applied in the sense that it should not only be net receivers that can be threatened with this. Because of course net payers, it, it could be harder to withhold money somehow, even though there's no guarantee that uh, net contributors to the European budget could not also violate the rule of law. So you, you want to think about a mechanism that cannot be seen as inherently discriminatory mm -hmm. towards the net receiving mm -hmm. countries. Mm -hmm. I think that mm -hmm. that is one thing that, that mm -hmm. is important for the sense yeah. of solidarity yeah. throughout. That's a very, very good point. Maria, would like to? But if I may, I mean, I, I, okay, so in any design of, of rule system, you need to have the punishment, but the prevention is, is, is much better, if you ask me. Sure. And, uh, and, and I, quite, quite frankly, I think what, where, where I think we all really, really need to make some, some, some progress is find a way of encouraging the promotion of the rule of law, monitoring and, 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 and controlling for it, you would always need the threat of the punishment and how to design that, of course, is, is, is useful and important. But I think that, you know, you, we have, I mean, to give an example, an analogy, if I may, we have the macroeconomic imbalances procedure that has really helped countries monitor certain indicators that are relevant for economic convergence and for economic health in general. Now, there's a lot of discussion as to whether it has been an effective process or not, but what it has to is simply because we have an annual frequency in which we impose this process, countries really aim to fix the numbers which are beyond the indicators as indicators. Why don't we do something like that with uh, the MIP? We have the Copenhagen criteria, which are accession criteria. There shouldn't be accession criteria. They should hold all the time. <laughs> That's right. It's not that you can sort of pass the criteria and then everything is fine. You should always you know, strive to do better in issues of governance. And this is why I think governance is really at the, at the, at the, at the, at the, at the source of why there is mistrust. There is a, so, you know, if you don't respect the rule of law all the time, um, this is where people are just not going to look you in the eye and just uh, sh shake your hand and actually mean mean what the shaking of hand means. So but, uh, yeah. I think the problem is that we've already seen sub zero, so we can't really start with a <coughs> with a neutral starting point anymore. I mean, we are we've already departed the point of you know he, there is a set of criteria and if you violate them there will be consequences. The the point is that there's I think not enough consequences to blatant violations of the rule of law, and there's not a political will to attach consequences. Yeah. And this is not, it's not just about Poland and Hungary. It started with Italy, with the ownership of media by Berlusconi. I mean, lo and sure. behold, he, he made a return. But um, these kinds of 
these kinds of systematic challenges to the rule of law have already gone unpunished, let's say. Sure. Um, and I think the, the Copenhagen criteria or the acquis already has the standards that countries should adhere to. I don't know if we need anything new. I just think what's lacking is political will to enforce. Sure. Sure. So let me open the floor for questions and comments. I mean, we, we covered a very broad range of issues from, from Donald Trump to East-West divide to Italy, Eurozone, trust. So please, when you intervene, please first introduce yourself uh, and try to be brief in your question or comment. Uh, let me first start with some non-Brugal people, if possible. <laughs> because I see my Bruegel colleagues in the first quick. Um, Two questions. Uh, I'm a, Christine Hattin. I'm a professor at Aix-Marseille in France, and also uh, I do research in, uh, in Cambridge in the US. The first one is the transatlantic relations. I'm uh, also very concerned. <coughs> but I was wondering, uh, what is the official reason Trump administration gave you? And I wonder, since the exemption has been granted to Mexico, uh, Canada, Australia, Japan. The big picture for US is Korea and military uh, deterrence policy. And when you see uh, when Trump came last summer and his main goal was NATO, to know what the EU would do with the budget for NATO, steel industry is critical. So I'd like to know why you don't link with the military discussion at NATO. That's the first question. The second is, um, um, Let us collect a few questions, and then I ask all three of the, of the panelists to, to respond. So is there a question there? Uh, okay, then, Marek, please. <coughs> Marek Rombrowski, Bruegel. Um, uh, discussion is really very interesting, but as Jolt uh, uh, mentioned, I think that its major problem is a very broad range of topics which we discuss uh, and indeed uh, the meaning of uncertainty is very 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 uh, broad and by definition we don't know future neither you know our personal future or collective future so maybe i will try a bit reformulate um, what kind of of major exogenous political shock can undermine uh, both economic and uh, global economic recovery, which are, by the way, are not so, so strong, they are rather modest. One of the factors was extensively uh, debated, this is, uh, I would say, Trump trade policy, and not, not uh, I would say, because this is the headline of the days, but, but I think that this really looks like strategic change in the uh, trade policy of the largest uh, economic and political power in the world, and also because the WTO institutional architecture is pretty fragile, fragile and I think its resilience to this kind of shock is problematic. The second, which was mentioned only by Maria, and I, uh, I was surprised that it was not taken up by others, this is Brexit, which is especially for Europe, but we don't know how this story will end up, and this definitely will not end up on the 29th of March next year. It will have further consequences and may have various second, third round effect, and they may be negative, both politically and economically. And the third factor which was mentioned, um, 
partly in uh, some uh, intervention. This is, I would say, increasing authoritarian trend uh, uh, around the world. And this is, it didn't start this and previous years. Actually, it started, if we look for various uh, ratings like Freedom House or Bertelsmann or uh, World Bank Governance Indicator some 10 years ago, it's incremental. I absolutely agree with you. We, of course, we have some shocks, but, but this is going. And this um, relates both to Europe, but also outside Europe. And um, sometimes are not easy to catch because in this kind of ranking, some countries are already uh, considered as authoritarian, but uh, very often the degree of authoritarian is increased. Let me give one example. Uh, is China, which, which was never considered a democratic country, but uh, I am personally afraid that the kind of constitutional changes which are now introduced, they will um, increase political uncertainty. What, what, what China can deliver both in terms of regional, global security, but also in terms of attitude to global economic order. There is dominant view that this is, regardless what will happen internally, China will be major pro-globalization. I am not so much sure. In my uh, perception, this is rather uh, return to some sort of Maoism in terms of, of ideology, in terms of, of uh, uh, and it's, uh, it's unclear what can it bring in terms of, of, of global economic order, for example, in the next three, five, or ten years. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yes. Francesco Abadia from Bruegel. Um, a lot of uh, right. Uh, stress uh, from the panel on governance, uh, respect of law, trust. Uh, from this point of view, it would be very interesting to hear something about Italy, because uh, Italy's performance in all this is not stellar to start with. Uh, and uh, after the current elections, uh, it may deteriorate. I mean, important political forces, we don't care about Europe, uh, we will go our own way. Um, so, uh, Professor Bruni uh, said he had something to say about Italy and it uh, would be very interesting to, to hear what he is, but of course uh, the other panelists may also have to say something about that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Is there a, another question? Uh, if not, then let me ask our, our, our panelists. Um, maybe I, I would start with, with MEP uh, Schalke on, mm. on, and end with Professor Bruni on, on perhaps Italy, but of course all oh, we, uh, if any of, any of you would like to comment also in Italy, feel free to do that. So, sure. so, so please, yes. on whatever topic, globalization, NATO, Yeah, Brexit. so much has been said. It's very important things uh, altogether. Um, maybe I'll start with Italy, actually. Because I think if we really push ourselves, we can wonder, is this the product of a lack of trust or is it you know, starting uh, lack of trust. I mean, I think the fact that the five-star movement could grow so fast is really because people thought anything but, you know, the established parties. And I think that that explains part of the trend we see in multiple um, countries. And we really have to ask ourselves, why? And I say this as someone who serves in political office and, you know, we face this competition of newcomers all the time. So um, I think, I think, the lack of addressing serious problems in Italian politics before 
has led to where we are today. Now, of course, we'll have to see how it plays out going forward, but perhaps the um, uh, carrying of responsibility uh, will lead to some reckoning, either with positive surprises or negative surprises, but at least that's one of the things that is possible once you're in elected office is to be held accountable, right? So let's see where it goes. I've seen very mixed signals from my colleagues in the European Parliament, some easy to work with, some uh, I, fear, I would fear for what, what the impact could be. Uh, but I think you're right that Italy has been a challenge for Europe in many ways. I will leave the economics and politics for those who know better, but also in areas like sanctions, you know, vetoes on, on EU sanctions, for example, vis-a-vis -vis Russia for the bombardments in Syria are something that I have thought was a, was a big, big mistake. Uh, the challenges to bring Italy on board for Iran sanctions have been something that has disturbed me quite a bit. So, um, yeah, I think there's, there's understanding of the challenges of an unstable uh, or isolated Italy uh, from, from the past and probably uh, even more so going forward with a new, um, new set of actors having to take on huge responsibilities and challenges with an agenda that doesn't necessarily suggest that they're up for that challenge. Um, then on the question of sanctions, um, the national security argument, and why or should it be tied to the NATO budget? I think what you see there is the fact that the US is, is invoking a national security reason to impose sanctions is actually very controversial. So it would be politically unwise for the EU to step into that frame and connect it to NATO payments and whatnot. I think the whole idea is to challenge the, the labeling of national security as a reason as such. Uh, so that may explain why that hasn't happened to that extent, although of course it's been mentioned that to, to mention the, or to invoke the national security argument vis-a-vis -vis allies is not appropriate. So it has been referenced in that sense, but not in a sort of quid pro quo kind of way and, and tying different, different files together. Um, yeah, maybe just one word on Brexit, of course, many things we couldn't mention here. <laughs> uh, and it is clear that Brexit is another one of those big, big chapters of pain. Uh, but perhaps also tying it to the question of Italy, one of those examples where a lack of trust, a fueling of fear, uh, has led to more than just political gamble or protest votes, but has really shown that votes, ideas, words matter. And in that sense, I believe that both the election of President Trump and the vote for Brexit and the unfolding chaos that is uh, happening every day has been a wake-up call to some in Europe. And so it's not because I want to look for silver lining, but I think you can see that it has brought people closer together in some areas because the realness of what these protest votes could lead to has become, has become painfully clear. And so maybe that's the best thing we can take from this, is to avoid further lose-lose situations from being so frivolously invited as they were in the case of Brexit. I think it's uh, extraordinary that this, is, that this is how easily the country and thereby the continent has, has gone in this direction. Thank you very much. Uh, Maria? Uh, well, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, just on... Um, Marek uh, raised this issue of uh, um, what major political uncertainty uh, could be the next shock. Uh, and that's, of course, a very important question because uh, also it 
if you believe that insurance is the way forward, we need to sort of what kind of events do we want to insure against? And I think that's a very important question to ask. Um, I actually believe that the 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 the, the I mean, populism and all these political issues, of course, are, are important. But uh, immigration is an is an issue that we haven't thought of as much as we ought to. I think um, if you think about the deal with Turkey mm-hmm. and the three million people that are in the other side of Turkey and what Turkey is doing in its in its part to deal with with the issue of of, uh, of primarily refugees uh, and what this could be if the relationship with Turkey doesn't proceed what it would mean for Europe. I think that's a political thing that we haven't thought of. And that is on top of the migration waves that we've seen from other parts of the world, which are non-war zones, these are not refugees, these are economic migrants, that are here to stay with us for the next 30 years. And I don't think we've had uh, either the tradition, simply because Europe has ever been a nation of, of, of accepting people, it has been a, a, a nation of sending people away. So this is a, a recent historical event. But there are people that are wanting to come to Europe, and they will continue to want to come to Europe for many years to come. Are we prepared for something like that? Uh, what would Europe need to do to help these destination countries develop, but at the same time integrate people as they come? And I think that, that, because it will have societal repercussions that are difficult to sort of design and design an equilibrium for, uh, so that's something that we need to prepare for. So in terms of shocks for the future, I think this is a very important one. Um, on Italy, I mean, I, you know, Francesco, you are the Italian here, you know much better than I do. Uh, one of the, the biggest disappointments in this election is the young. Actually, how it is the young that have actually are being the Euroskeptics. In in the British case, it's mm. not the young, mm. it's the old. So some some of us say, oh, just wait a just wait a few years, they will come back and be fine. In Italy, we have to wait a lot more <laughs> because it is the young that have turned against uh, the the EU, and and of course there is youth unemployment in Italy, and that justifies that. But actually, talking to the talking to young people in terms of how they see Europe, that's really the big disappointment in Italy. And how do you engage with the young? How do you engage with the next forty years of Italy, effectively? But isn't this engagement also through social media and sort of big question marks about how how fact-checked some of the information was also a factor in Italy? I mean, maybe Italian friends can share more on that. But I don't know why that should be specific to Italy, not to the rest of the world. I mean, the young engage in the same way all over the place. I, I don't no, know. No, because I think Five Star Movement has used technology in a more yeah. innovative way than many other political parties have. I see. Or a more revolutionary, maybe I should rephrase. Huh? Sorry? Oh, it's important how to use new technology. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, I mean, in view of the Cambridge issue now, I mean, exactly. It's this kind of issue. It's yeah. not an, an important point. Uh, I don't know. Uh, hmm. Professor Bruni? <laughs> well, I would like to, to be prepared to answer questions on Italy much more than I am. And uh, uh, I would enjoy spending uh, one hour talking, trying to, to put in order the, the ideas. but. Let me react in a very quick uh, way to these curiosities about my country. Um, well, first of all, uh, Brussels has been a scapegoat for Italy. We have problems, uh, bad management, uh, structural reforms are, are not coordinated at the European level, so the incentive to go for, for structural reforms is very weak. We only have uh, these uh, uh, specific uh, recommendations of the Commission, which I keep writing and talking when I go around in Italy, saying if you look out of five specific recommendations, four and a half are on structural reforms. 
only half of it, it's on uh, fiscal uh, prudence, etc. So uh, when you talk about you know, uh, austerity imposed by Brussels, just look at it. They care about schools, about lawyers. And in fact, if you look at the legislation that in Italy has gone, has gone on and has improved a lot the country recently in terms of human rights, in terms of uh, many, many important, uh, I mean, much of this has been inspired by, by Europe. It, it, we, we, were, we were late in uh, complying with European rules, and this was a big force for the government to push the legislation through the parliament. So Europe has, has been extremely important for it, but, but, but the problems are there, and, and uh, every, everybody thinks to Europe as a scapegoat for them. So when you go to Brussels, it's to get something instead of bring something. And yeah. this is what, but this is not only for Italy. Sure. I, mean, I think that other countries are behaving the same thing, so that the construction of Europe loses something instead of uh, getting, getting something. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, on the five-star movement, I mean, here the, the discussion is very delicate, and I'm, I'm not uh, uh, sufficiently expert to. But let me say a couple of things. First of all, <clears throat> they, they are much more flexible and much more uh, 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 let's say uh, able to enter into some kind of a, an agreements with much more reasonable people than, than is normally thought. Uh, they are not uh, neither extremely right nor extremely left. They are a strange group of, of, of people. They are extremely diversified inside. There are really criminal, I, I don't want to exaggerate, but uh, in, a, in a way there are, there are uh, inserts of criminal people, especially in, in the recent vote. Uh, there are uh, old fascist people that, for instance, are ruling Rome. Uh, this is a group of people that have really f fascist roots in, in the tradition of, of, of polit politics in Rome. But there are also people that come from the left, from the, from the Social Democratic Party. Very, and in a way, they have a big merit because they have absorbed the discontent in Italy that could have gone in much more radical, uh, in much more radical directions. So I think that something can be done, I hope, uh, with this group of people. There are many young people that are, I think, in reasonable good faith, totally ignorant uh, uh, often, but also open to cooperation. And uh, the problem is that nobody is really there to cooperate with them mm -hmm. because the, the weaknesses are also outside them. I mean, the Social Democrats are in a very strange situation, very divided and unable really to deal with the Five Star Movement, uh, which would be the solution, I think. Uh, and on the right, you have Berlusconi and the fascists. So it's it's really it's 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 really hard. Not so much for the five star, but for 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 the others. Um, uh, well, um, and finally, <clears throat> let me say that Italy would benefit enormously from some decisions that could be taken by the uh, by Europe uh, now that also take care a lot of the opinion of, of the large public. So for instance, if anything could be done, maybe with a small amount of money, we don't need to, then we economists, and we're going to, to, to play the trumpet and to try to magnify this. Just, just give us a little bit of money put, put there for unemployment, uh, unemployment uh, insurance. 
But, but the only thing we need is to be able to go around and to explain that Europe is there for something. Uh, that is clearly visible for, for people. And uh, an unemployment insurance uh, uh, device, uh, facility, uh, may be very small, but, but uh, can, can, be, can be, I think, usefully uh, publicized in Italy mm. to get more, uh, more trust in, in, in European. And another, obviously, uh, another front where it's urgent to make progress is migrations, because there, mm. there we are really victims of uh, injustice. So we, we have, to, we have to, to feel and to be able to sell to our public opinion the support of uh, of, of European of European affairs, so uh, let's uh, let's hope that we can get uh, in this sense a little bit of, and uh, in, in, in a way this is also a reason why European authorities now should uh, should look at highly technical highly technical issues like uh, banking union and all these things. It is I am a financial economist. I I would like to give, give all my attention to these to these affairs here, but. Uh, I feel like a citizen that I have to take care of other things because other things are much more. The, the Europe of banks is a, is a disaster in terms of publicity. I mean, if, if, if they go around and talk to the, the, all the, 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 the issues that I know better, you know, that they, they, they will just sh shut me down. So, uh, so we need to receive some messages that are more... Uh, uh, and in a way, dealing with the with the problem of the eastern countries would would, would also be a nice uh, piece of news. For, yeah, for on the migration front. On the migration front first. But, but, but can no, I no, ask no, you no, something yes. just just to understand? Because I understand the the, the question of you know a small symbol or s yeah. gesture rather to um, to Italy. But um, my sense was that around the earthquake there has been quite a bit of mobilization. That there is this thing called Globalization Adjustment Fund, which as a liberal I'm very critical of, but in any case it exists. Um, there is a um, youth unemployment scheme. Absolutely. So what more did you have in mind? Do you think that the numbers are too low? Is it not sold well enough? Is there something new needed, basically? You, you have to probably unify a bit this and communicate it much better. But yeah. this, this is the problem of, of, of Europe. Look, when I go to my students and I explain that we have bailed out Greece, Cyprus, Ireland, Portugal, Spain, and, and I put on the whiteboard the, the numbers involved, uh, they, they, they feel impressed because they, they, so Europe has been providing common goods and common insurance in a way. We, we, have, we have helped. Uh, our, ourselves reciprocally in, in some way, but but nobody nobody really talks about that. Uh, uh, there's there's no there's no sensation that Europe is there really also to help each other. And we, in spite of the institutions we have that are still a, a bit uh, uh, immature from this point of view, but we have done a lot. Now uh, people people should should be informed, uh, and, and Italians in particular need to be informed about that. Uh, by the way, the five-star movements are, have denied the, their, their, uh, the fact that they are enemies of Europe. They, 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 for instance, uh, somebody like ISPI, somebody like me or, or my institution, ISPI or Bocconi, that are notoriously extremely pro-Europe, are 
attract a lot of interest by them. I, we keep getting phone calls, visits. Uh, they ask to be invited by us. They want to learn. They, they, some of my colleagues receive some of the five-star guys, and, and they take notes on, on advices. So we can work with at least some of these guys. We have to discriminate them. We can work. Uh, and uh, but the problem is that something has to to come. You you, you cannot Europe cannot just wait that you uh, that Italy uh, helps itself. I mean we have to move. Uh, in, 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 uh, but you know what I think would be a good challenge for you to teach your economy lessons with all those bailouts to Dutch students and see what questions they ask. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is what it's about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so I think it's time to wrap up, or if not wrap up, but just conclude and, and close this very, very nice discussion. We have talked many, many issues that various type of uncertainties globally within Europe, within, within countries, which, which might or might not have impact. But I think one very, very key conclusion that there are so many issues under the table that complacency should be a word we should never heard of and instead focus on, on, on really deeply on the underlying causes of the various uncertainties. So, so again, let me thank MEP Schake, uh, <coughs> Deputy Director de Mercis and Professor Bruni Thanks for sharing their very thoughtful uh, ideas with us and for all of you for being here and participating in this event. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.